Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 245. My name is Cameron English. I'm your host, as always. Joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn. Liza, good to see you. I hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. I did. I had a wonderful Thanksgiving. How about you? It was highly caloric. Yeah, mine too. As, <laughs> as, a, as a good friend of mine says, uh, if there's any time to eat way too many mashed potatoes, it's uh, the day of giving thanks. And I've never <laughs> met a potato that I didn't like. <laughs> yeah, maybe a sweet potato. I'm not crazy about those, but yeah, um, I guess so. Yeah, they're a little too sweet for me. Yeah, I don't dig them. Um, before we get into our stories here, I want to encourage everyone to come hang out with us on Twitter because it is way too much fun. <laughs> Just for example, Dr. Kevin Folta earlier this week, um, who Liza stepped in for uh, uh, last year or later earlier this year posted a picture of, I think it was in his neighborhood, and it said, organic puppies for sale. Great name, big puppies. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> and I was looking at it, and I was like, there's a great joke in here somewhere. I just got to think of it. And and everyone was posting the like, well, I guess they're non-GMO. <laughs> I'm like, no, that's too easy. Let me think about this. And before I could post it, Liza posted, they probably have ticks, fleas, and worms then if they're organic. <laughs> I was like, that's it. She owns the thread. I'm going to let it go. It's been a long day. I can't top that. <laughs> so, Yeah, Twitter is wonderful like that. Twitter is yeah. really wonderful like that. Yeah, you can the, have all the, sorts of great conversations with so many interesting people. Yes. Yeah, there's thoughtful intellectuals, but then there's also ridiculous jokes that communicate the same point. Mm -hmm. So come join us. There is also another thread about banning pet ownership in the name of reducing carbon emissions, <laughs> 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 which uh, a friend of ours, Dr. David Zarek, actually made a sign. He went to a Greta Thunberg rally and held the sign up, and no one understood the joke he was making because they're, <laughs> they're all uh, that crazy. Okay. They're very serious. Yeah, yeah. But uh, all that to say, come hang out with us on Twitter. It's, it's uh, we Our handles are on the screen. Our producer puts them on the screen. So I'll repeat them later. But uh, come hang out with us. Uh, and now, let's talk about what we actually came to talk about, which are some pretty fascinating uh, science stories. So first up, trust in scientists nosedives post-pandemic with deeper slide among Republicans. Next up, reckoning for European Green Deal farm-to-fork strategy. Lawmakers side with farmers and consumers Barry planned to put chemical pesticide use uh, down by 50%. And finally, playing God, Catholic ethical experts cautioned against, quote, superhuman genetic future. Okay, lots of cool stuff here. Let's start with this, uh, this poll, though, Liza. This is from Pew. This was published on uh, November 14th, so middle, middle of the month, middle of last month for, for folks listening now. Um, and I can't say I'm terribly surprised by the results. Um, there were a few that we'll get into that I think are uh, perhaps a little unexpected. But overall, they said, um, and they're, they're breaking it down by political affiliation. So I'm not trying to get partisan here, but this is just part of the poll, everybody. So um, they said, um, among both Democrats and Republicans, trust in science is significantly lower than before the pandemic. Now, the good news is that uh, it's just under 60% of Americans say science has had a mostly positive impact on society, but this has declined. So this is down eight percentage points since um, this time in 2021, and it's down 16 points since before the outbreak of the pandemic. And about 34% of people now say that science uh, has had a an equal, I don't know how this is possible, but an equally positive and negative impact on yeah. society. So maybe we can dive into that. Um, 
And again, good news overall, 73% of U.S. adults say they trust scientists to do work that's in the public good. But again, this is uh, declining. So I think this is, this is down 14 points as well from the earlier stages of the pandemic. So there's a lot of results to get into. That's just sort of a brief outline of the kind of numbers we're talking about here. Uh, what did you make of this? Yeah, I think it's I think it's actually fairly reflective of what's ha- happened because of COVID. I think uh, faith in science is has get, taken a nosedive. Um, it was interesting. There was an appendix in that article that was talking about uh, medical scientists specifically, and there's a big drop off in the trust of medical sciences. Um, and I think that has to do with how the pandemic was handled. Um, and what's really interesting is that we're seeing them. Um, with this new kind of syndemic that they're talking about going around. I don't know if you've been hearing about the mycoplasma pneumonia outbreak that started in China and that seems like it's making its way over here. A lot of people are uh, sort of revisiting their fears about lockdowns and what the implications are uh, for them and their families uh, in terms of balancing health and wellness and well-being and, you know, uh, everyday life. Um, and so I think that... Uh, the, the, the misinformation that's been online, the, um, the w- poorly conducted scientific communication around this topic um, have, has really resulted in this, in this increase in distrust. And it's not just Republican, although Republicans are more uh, distrustful, it, it is across the board that you're seeing this drop off. Um, I think a lot of people are concerned about um, what they're hearing and whether or not it's true. And so that's why it's so critically important to keep uh, politics and personal biases out of trying to find that truth and, you know, do the best you can to, to, you know, listen to both sides of a story before you and, and, and understand where people are coming from when they have questions about science. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- one thing that stuck out to me, and maybe this is just the nature of polling, but I think there's some conflation going on here. There's people that are conflating trust in institutions with trust in the process of science itself or the results of science. So that's true. I think if you were to phrase the questions that way, you know, for example, is your life better or worse with air conditioning? You know, do you like having access to more food or less food? Would you yeah. rather? travel by boat or by airplane if you're going on vacation you know unless you're going on a cruise i think most people are going to say i love all those things that's exactly right and to one extent or another science and technology um, are involved in all of those so i i think that's one thing and maybe that's again it's just the nature of polling or maybe that's the way the questions are phrased but i think that's important you know i don't think anyone says you know i've had enough of the science stuff i think what they're tired of is you know, policies that are obviously partisan or yep. obviously motivated by something else besides data. data. I think that's, that's what's pissing people off. And I, one reason I think this is, as you just alluded to, um, confidence is down among Democrats too. Yep. That's exactly right. So I'm trying to find the, I'm trying to find the specific stat. Um, but I want to say that it was something like a 20% decline among yes. Democrats. So there, so there, it starts much higher. And then it dropped by like like 20 points. So it's a significant drop and it's still higher than Republicans. But I think that's striking because people that lean to the left are typically much more comfortable with um, government intervention, right? So if yeah, the government- and, and the institutions too. So, you know, the mm-hmm. different 
they, they, they like credentialism. They like, uh, they, they, they have a lot of faith in those things. So I think that that's, that's where uh, there's an issue. Yeah, here it is. So here's, here's the quote. So confidence in scientists has also moved lower among Democrats. The share of Democrats and Democrat-leaning independents with a great deal of confidence in scientists, uh, which initially rose in the pandemic's first year, now stands at 37%, down from a high of 55% in November 2020. So that, to me, that says, you know, even among people who are like, you know, I'm okay if you tell me to get a, a, a vaccine and if you make me wear a mask or you make me stay home. I'm like, it's, it, you know, people of that persuasion, I, I think, come to it and they say, you know, this is my duty. This is my civic duty as an American or whatever. And even they're like, you know, I'm kind of tired of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think aren't those lower poll numbers than Biden has? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I I tend to not put too much stock in, in polling. either polling. Yeah, polling in yeah. either direction. I agree with you. Yeah, you can yeah, use it's... you can use poll numbers for whatever persuasion you <laughs> you want right. to you know propaganda you want to persuade people with. Yeah, yeah. You can phrase questions in such a way that they're going to yield certain answers, and then you can present the question pub to the public and say, "Look, right." But the, but the framing is different, and, and everyone's seen examples of this. So I think that's important. Um, before we move on, was there anything else in this polling that stuck out to you uh, as a physician and as someone who's, uh, you know, deeply ingrained in the science world? No, I just, I just thought it was pretty interesting to look at because it was bipartisan. And uh, I was really particularly interested in the medical uh, mm-hmm. drop off. And it was pretty, it was pretty profound. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I don't know, there seems to be sort of a... Um, I don't know how to put it. Like there's this weird tension in some of these answers, you know, so eight in 10 Americans say government investments in scientific research are usually worthwhile for society, you know, but at the same time they say, I don't trust the institutions that That's right. that make those, in, those investments or, <clears throat> or who receive the money that's invested, you know? So I don't know. It seems like we're going through some sort of an identity crisis or, Something, you know, yeah. It'll be crisis. interesting to see yeah. how it all pans out in the long run. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there, and um, we'll come back to this. This has been one of our. <clears throat> excuse me. Got something in my throat. It's been one of our perennial issues on the show. Is uh, you know, trust in science, and you know what motivates people to uh, get a vaccine or to you know eat, eat, eat GMOs a or yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so we'll return to that. Just something to keep in mind. I think it illustrates the, you know, why it's so important to earn the public's trust. And so does this next story, incidentally. This is a piece by uh, Bill Wirtz. He's writing for Real Clear Markets. And he's with the Consumer Choice Center. He's a policy analyst, really sharp guy. He writes a lot about agriculture. Um, and in this story, he's talking about the European Union's farm-to-fork strategy. It was part of their Green Deal. And there's three primary policies that are that are a part of this plan. Um, first, it's a 50% reduction in pesticide use. The second was a significant decline or significant cut in fertilizer use. I don't know if it was 50%. I don't know if you know that, but it was a major decline in huge in decline in fertilizer synthetic, use. Yeah. Synthetic fertilizer use. It's a dumb word. We can explain that. And then I think it was um, 25% of EU farmland had to be organic. Organic, be, yeah. Yeah. So this was a this was the setup in early 2020, and they said, right, as as hubristic people tend to do they're like we are going to save the world with our you know eight thousand year old farming farming methods (laughs) (laughs) right right. yeah we're going to force ancient egyptian agriculture on you and you're going to love it and if you don't like it then too bad because we're going to we're going to make it happen and Um, then then, uh, go ahead go ahead 
No, no and go then ahead, they and then reality hit, right? Because Ukraine <laughs> went offline <laughs> with the with the whole the, you know Russian invasion. You, you, a huge, huge part of uh, uh, European agriculture is dependent on U- Ukraine. Um, I think mm-hmm. was it twenty nineteen? I think that um, France ran out of it's some of one of its oil seeds. Um, rape, I think, it, it, which is canola, which is slightly genetically different, but it, the canola is it, it, what it is in Canada. Ukraine ran out of it, or sorry, uh, France ran out of it, and then so they had to go and they actually depleted all of Ukraine's um, because of the demand for it. So they, they realized, oh my gosh, maybe maybe um, this little system that we have is a little bit more fragile than we anticipated. And when you have 2% of the population farming for you and feeding the other 98%, um, and you and you can't keep up with demand even there. Uh, you kind of start thinking maybe we should not mess with that in a way that with at least without talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know better than farmers. You know, just feed us and we'll tell you how to do it because we're smarter than you, you dumb hicks, right? Um, that's the so- that's the idea. That's 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 what they that's what people have in their heads. Yeah, they won't. They won't put it that way, but we'll put it here for them because that's that's the the uh, result of what they're they're talking about. It's like you know, you're dumb and you like chemicals, and I'm smarter and sophisticated because I went to you know university of because I've got a cre- I've got a credential. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. So so to to continue, and you you brought up Ukraine, which is a key one because that cut off uh, fertilizer supplies. It cut off. Um, grains significantly right so the developing world felt that the hardest but even in europe they're like wait a minute we might not have enough of this wheat stuff we need what's going on here (laughs) Um, but then of course you had covid which shut down the global economy for a significant amount of time and then as a result of all of these things interest rates exploded so there's less capital 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 excuse me available for long-term projects and investments you know so everything contracted, economically speaking. And so the and the here's the good news though. The good news is that people in in EU, in the EU, even in power, started to pull back. And you had political parties all of a sudden, and there was one in particular, it's called the European People's Party. All of a sudden they took on this like, I'm the working man's party and we love farmers. And they just started, and Bill says they started shooting down every piece of legislation that was in any way tied to the Green Deal. Yeah. So I think I think as the kids say, F A F O, right? Yeah, they that's started, exactly right. They started messing around and the farmers, particularly in the Netherlands, <laughs> were pissed off. And and Kevin and I talked about this uh sometime last year. They were building hay bales, like giant pyramids of hay bales, and they were putting fireworks at the base of these <laughs> and then triggering them from a distance and just setting these giant fires all over the freeways <laughs> throughout yeah. the country. You know, so I, I thought that was obviously we don't write destruction of properties bad. Don't do that. Yeah. Nonetheless, I, I saw that as sort of like this desperate last measure of these people going, look, you're not taking my land from me. You're not taking my livelihood. Here we go. And that's the point at the Netherlands. Once again, if I, I think I've said this in a previous episode, the Netherlands has if you took off all of their green, greenhouse gases, all of it, not just farming, everything, everybody stopped driving cars, everybody stopped using electricity, everything. That would decrease global emissions by something like 0.037%. It, would, it wouldn't even t- 
touch it. And it's, it's a huge agriculture. Their, their agriculture se- sector is one of the most efficient, um, important agriculture sectors in the whole world. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it, taking that, trading off the food security that you get with their very efficient agriculture by, to, to, for some pipe dream is, is, um, is silly um, it, it, because it doesn't make a difference. Let's, let's make it, I, I'm all for reducing greenhouse gases and things like that, but don't, don't bankrupt everybody in the meantime. And I think that was one of the lessons that we learned from COVID. If you bankrupt everybody because you keep them from working, you can't yeah. pay for hospital bills and you can't pay for doctors and you can't say, so you have to sort of think about these things reasonably, not just ideally. It, 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 there was also the USDA went and looked um, at the economic impacts of this particular plan, and they thought they found that it was going to um, drive up food prices in the EU by close to ten percent, and then worldwide by eighty nine percent. Now imagine if you're a subsistence farmer or are barely eking by um, on 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 your day to day farming, or and your food prices go up close to ninety percent. That that's just that's untenable. That is, that's immoral is what that is. You can't do that to other people once again for your version of morality. Um, this would, they, 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 there's a, they also estimated that it would uh, decrease societal welfare is what they said mm-hmm. by $96 billion to $1.1 trillion and increase the number of food insecure people by $185 million. That's th- Those are people, right? You can't you can't do that to people who are who exist, right? Yeah. <laughs> that is no. So um, I think that 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 economic outlook, plus the reality of the situation on the ground, made Europeans kind of think, "Oh, maybe we need to rethink this." Plus, Sri Lanka was a great case right. study for what happens. Yeah. Yeah, people go hungry and then they kick their president out and start swimming in his pool. <laughs> That's exactly right. And you're there seeing was- people. You're seeing people backtrack on things like glyphosate, like Robin Misnage is actually saying, well, maybe we yeah. shouldn't ban it. Yeah. Hmm. Crazy world we live in when Robin Misnage is a voice of reason in Europe, who, by the way, is uh, one of the few scientists in the anti-GMO movement, or at least was, mm-hmm. you know. So so the, uh, the fact that a figure with that sort of background is coming out and going, you know, Maybe, Maybe this we, bare own chemical isn't all that bad, right? That yeah. uh, right. We're living in a new world. Yep. Um, before we move on, one thing, I'll, one final thing I'll add is this was all anticipated, mm-hmm. right? If you listen to shows like this, if you read people that uh, write for GLP, this was all anticipated. And just as one example, I think it's called uh, Wiginigan University or something like mm-hmm. that. They're they're in they're in the Netherlands. It's a major agricultural school, and they put out a study of the Green Deal, and they said one of the biggest uh, results of this is going to be exporting this uh, intensive agriculture to poorer countries. So Europe's going to have this halo and they're going to feel very good about themselves for being so progressive and so earth friendly. But then all of the work and all the labor is just going to go to poorer countries because the food has to be produced because everyone still needs to eat. And then Europe's going to spend all sorts of money importing it. Right. Right. <laughs> so they're going to be food insecure and they're going to use all these techniques elsewhere. And then Europe's going to be importing it at great expense to the European population. Yes. Yeah. So all the people in uh, in Dubai right now, seventy thousand of them or however many, right? All the all the decision makers, all of our who overlords flew, who flew <laughs> to Dubai. I, I don't think people swam. Um, no. Who flew to Dubai? 
Yeah, yeah. 70,000 of them. <laughs> yeah. So these these are the grand plans of the idiots who somehow run the world. I don't understand how that happened, but uh, here we are, right? It, it failed, right? Yeah. And, and I, I think what, I, what made me so happy about Bill's story is that you see the pushback. You know, pe- people reach a point where they go, I am not going along with this. I will set hay bales on fire, fire. before I let you take my farm away. And the politician said, okay, well, we won't, sorry, you know, our bad, right? We exactly. tried it, you know, so it's a great story as all I'm saying. It's finally, it's great to see people. Common sense prevail. Yes. Yes. Okay. Next story is, uh, could be kind of touchy. I really like talking about it. It's a fascinating subject, but this is, um, this is by a journalist named Quentin Adminson and he's writing for the Catholic register. And a story is called Playing God, Catholic Ethical Experts Caution Against uh, Superhuman Genetic Future. This is fascinating to me because um, GLP talks a lot about this, but you don't hear from, um, I guess, people in the religious world too much. You know, there's a lot of great thinkers um, who are alive and who are deceased now who talked a lot about this, but it's just for one reason or another, it's not part of the conversation really. So that's the focus of this article. So Edmondson, um, he interviews an, uh, a theologian and he's a theologian. So he's a p- part of the Catholic church, um, but he has a PhD in ethics, I think. And so mm-hmm. he talks about this professionally and his name's Dr. Brett Salkeld, if I pronounce that right. But the gist of his work is, and this is a direct quote, um, he contemplates moral questions about these medical technologies. And we're talking about CRISPR gene editing and not just for food or not just for, um, uh, you know, curing Mendelian disorders, like single gene mutation disorders, but germline editing, where you're, where you're editing people's DNA that they will pass on to their children and their children's children. Um, and I think that's fascinating because we just don't really have those, those kind of questions or those kind of discussions, Liza, like, <laughs> you know, and one of the questions he brings up is, you know, could this be used to take traits away from people, right? So we talk a lot about the designer baby thing or the, you know, the blue, uh, blue, blue eyed, blonde hair, super soldier people. Right. Right. But you could as equally at some point, this isn't present, but at some point there could come a time where you go, you know, people who are born in this community or before they have children, we're going to make sure that their kids are born really strong so they can be good workers or good soldiers or, you know, so, 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 it's like the opposite of the sky is the limit. So these are the sort of questions um, these kind of people are, are contemplating, which is great. I love talking about this. I think it's very important. Um, and that's, that's basically the setup is right. There's all of these unknowns. We do, we have a very poor, for all we know about genetics, we still have a very poor understanding of germline editing. Um, and we need to slow down to think about this. But meanwhile, you have organizations like the World Economic Forum. They're talking about this fourth industrial revolution, which is going to be this synthesis of what, what did, what did Schwab call it? The physical, digital, and biological spheres. They're just going to become this one Mush. blob of future, future technology, and it's going to be wonderful, and we're going to own nothing. And <laughs> be happy. Right, yeah. <laughs> You're going to live in your little apartment. The drones will bring you your food for the day, and... You know, we don't care. That's if you follow the rules. Right, right, right. They'll turn they'll turn your barcode off on your forehead if you get too sassy on Twitter or whatever. (laughs) But in all seriousness, jump in here. You're the physician. I I, there of course are some very exciting applications of um, you know genetic uh, selection and gene editing, but it it could go off the the cliff very quickly. If I'm yeah. So to clarify, this is 
fantastic uh, technology, and it's got really good potential to cure devastating diseases. So um, we've got Victoria Gray, who's the first patient who underwent this uh, uh, therapy to treat your sickle cell. Sickle cell disease is a, a terrible disease um, where you get microclot, you get your blood, red blood cells, which carry um, oxygen. Uh, are, are, when you have low oxygen, they turn into a sickle shape and they clog up your micro microcirculation, causing huge pain crisis. They have a, a lower um, life expectancy. They have early strokes, heart attacks, horrible things, and terrible, terrible pain syndromes. And the way we've been treating sickle cell anemia for for decades is with opiates and hydration, sometimes blood transfusions, and a few other things. But it's pretty much the same thing that we've always used. Um, and to cure this disease is is quite remarkable. Now, some people would say this in, in some people would say, well, why don't we just cure it once and for all by so that by by doing a germline mutation. So, making it so that the babies and the, their offspring wouldn't have this mutation. I mean, you could theoretically do that with a, with a, with a um, sperm or an ova um, and, and make sure that they don't have that trait in there and, you know, cut and paste your um, new uh, amino or your new gene coding for the correct amino acid um, way, way, way upstream. Well, if you think about that, why did sickle cell evolve in the first place? Sickle cell evolved in the first place because um, if you're heterozygous for the traits, right? So your dad gives you one gene and your mom gives you the other gene and the mom genes is affected, but the dad genes not, um, that makes you resistant to malaria because you have a, um, your, your red blood cells are slightly, slightly um, weaker at certain, a certain pool of them, but another pool of them, it's, it's going to be fine. So you actually balance out that thing. Mm. Um, so if you did a germline edit for sickle cell anemia for a whole population, all of a sudden are you introducing um, susceptibility to malaria that you didn't have before. Mm. And it's, it's same thing with cholera. So the, the cholera, terrible diarrheal illness, right? Um, there is thought that the um, gene for cystic fibrosis, which is also a disease that you get when you, that's a, it's autosomal recessive. So you have to inherit a, a gene from mom and dad to be able to, to, to get the disease, right? So it, it's thought that the gene for cystic fibrosis, if you only have one of them, um, it actually decreases your risk of cholera because it makes it a little bit harder for, um, the way it works is it's a, protein on your, on, on your epithelial cells that conducts chloride and, and water tends to follow. Um, and if you have a harder time getting chloride out of the cells, water doesn't follow as quickly. And so if that's your gut, you're not having this, you know, outpouring of diarrhea. So, so the, 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 if you do a germline mutation uh, or germline edit to fix that, you may be introducing susceptibility to a whole variety of diseases that we aren't really aware of um, 
unbeknownst to us. And so that's that's the scientific reason why I think we have to be careful with these things because we're not 100%. I mean, Mother Nature over millennia developed those things. And of course, we don't want anybody to have sickle cell. And of course, we don't want anybody to have cystic fibrosis. So if we could figure out how to fix those diseases for patients who have those diseases, but don't, but not, um, uh, decrease, not, not make other people have increased risk of diseases that they're protected from because mm-hmm. they're heterozygous for it. Um, that's, that's the, the, that's kind of my thought about it. Of course, we want to fix Huntington's. We want to fix uh, Alzheimer's. We want to fix these things. So I think that it's really important to maybe explore this technology. Um, but I do think it's important also, not just scientifically, to have guardrails, but ethically to have guardrails. Because if you think about it, eugenics, this is you could be turned into eugenics on the molecular level. Yes. And so I think that there are all sorts of reasons to be careful. Um, I think Jennifer Dudna has been very, um, uh, very good about talking about the potential of this, but has not gone in the same direction as um, maybe they learned from the stem cell debate. I don't know. Um, it has, has been very careful to not overpromise what this mm-hmm. can do and pay attention to the ethical constraints. I think that people often feel like they're doing good. If you think about the Chinese researcher, um, Hei JK, I think uh, uh, he, he's, he, he, uh, knew how to do this technique. He learned it. He's a PhD. I want to say, where did he go? He was somewhere, maybe Rice, uh, and then went back to China and um, programmed two, a, twin, a set of twins um, to be resistant to HIV. And I think he thought, and he announced it at a medical conference, and I think he thought that what he was doing was good, it was beneficial. And I think a lot of people think, you know, on, on, on the surface, that seems like he's trying to do good. Um, but we don't know what the consequences are. You can't be overly precautionary, but I think it's really important to have ethical uh, guardrails. And a lot of people don't like um, a lot of people don't like uh, the you know religion weighing in because they think religion's anti-science. Well, the Catholic Church, like I said a couple weeks ago, you know, the match came up with the Big Bang theory, and uh, you know, Gregor Mendel was a monk. Um, so, religion and science are not um, antithetical to each other. I think that they can go hand in hand, and sometimes, um, sometimes religion can provide some ethical framework for which to consider um, scientific advances. Yeah. Yeah, that's an idiotic talking point. I'm, I, I think it's it's been abandoned in recent years somewhat. You know, like when the new atheist thing was mm-hmm. was all all in the news, that was sort of this dumb thing. Um, just a suggestion: read Thomas Aquinas if you think religious people are stupid. Yeah, like, yeah. Do, like you know, and really, really, like really dive into it and and tell me that uh, you know he didn't understand <laughs> what he was talking about, um, or Aristotle for that matter. Or Aristotle, in any, yeah. In any case, um, to get back on point. I, let me give an example of just how nuts this could go at some point. Um, and this comes from uh, Dr. Barbara Billauer. I'm not smart enough to think of examples like this, but she talks about this in a paper she wrote about this topic. And she's like a, she's a legal scholar. She writes about bioethics. She insists that I don't call her a bioethicist. Apparently it's a very defined, she says like, she doesn't go running around hospitals, unplugging people's ventilators. So, <laughs> so she doesn't want that title. Um, in any case, one of the points she makes in, a paper she wrote is that 
there are, especially in the world we live in, this is kind of a postmodern, you know, truth is my lived experience kind of thing. There are a lot of people that might see what we consider physical deficits part of their identity. Right. So, so deafness is, is a great example. Um, if you've seen the movie Sound of Metal, it's on Amazon Prime. It's a great movie. But the whole premise of that movie is that being deaf or becoming deaf, it's not a, a deficit to be fixed. It's, it's how you adapt to the world. It's how you bond with other people who have that. So you could you could get to a place where once the technology becomes um, perf- you know um, advanced enough, where you could say, well, we can we can make sure that your child isn't born deaf, and then you could have people go, well, I want my child to be deaf because I'm deaf, and this is this is you know what I believe in. This is my truth. This is my lived experience. You know, so you get into a situation like that where you go, well, who gets to decide, right? right. Is it is it the parental rights or do does the child who's not born yet have any say in this? Do they get to sue their parents when they become uh, adults because right. they didn't want to be deaf? Um, and then, and then this is this is very very authoritarian, you know, Handmaid's Tale crazy stuff. But um, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book Abolition of Man. But he makes the point that if if you make technology advanced like this, where you can literally control the traits that people are born with, you're you're not just saying, oh, we can cure your disease. You're giving power to a handful of people handful right. of scientists and politicians and regulators to literally control the future of humanity and not That's in some true. not in some weird abstract way i mean like just very practically and look what's and, happening in canada just just with the maid the 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 um they they have a program where you can opt to have be have assisted suicide medically assisted I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but medically assisted um, suicide. And they've actually gotten to the point where they are offering that to people with depression. Mm-hmm. So if you can do that on the molecular level, and, and, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's mind-blowing to me, mind-blowing mm-hmm. to me that, that, that this is part of, people always like to take the scenario where somebody's got intractable cancer pain or some terrible disease, and you can empathize with those people, right? But then it invariably kind of goes down the slippery slope where you're doing things that are, are unconscionable and some, some people are making, a small number of people are making that decision. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is the part that's scary to me is that when, when the technology is presented, everyone brings up, you know, well, we could cure disease and we could make everyone born happy and it's going to be this great thing. And it's sort of Pollyanna-ish. It's like, it's like look at the world we live in. Look at the people who are in charge, as I made an insulting joke earlier, right? Look at the people who run the U.S. government, Yeah. right? right. Do you want those people to have the authority to say, well, you get gene editing, you don't, because I don't like you because you're whatever, whatever thing you have, I don't like, mm-hmm. you know, or, or this agency I think is deeply corrupt, but they control the funding of this research. Look, you know? at, look at the decisions insurance companies are making. Right. About uh, health insurance with people who've who've you know got long-standing disorders, they all of a sudden. They, I mean, this is this is what happens. <laughs> it's it's not a. It's, it's so you got to be very very careful about these things. Yeah, um, I'm trying to get the the Lewis quote I wanted to to bring up. Oh yeah, okay. So one of the points he makes because people will push back and they will say, well, there's always been powerful people that will abuse their power. And Lewis, and he's writing this in the 1940s, by the way. So this is really old. So he's anticipating all of these conversations we're having. But 
He's talking about the people who want to use this technology to, to literally re remake humanity. He calls them the conditioners or the, the man molders. So he says the man molders of the new age will be armed with the powers of an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get at last a race of conditioners who really can cut out all past uh, posterity in what they shape uh, as they please. Right. So it's, I mean, and that's so crazy to think about, but, but if you can change people at the genetic level, mm -hmm. right, right. Everyone that comes after you, you're in charge of what happens to them yep. before they're born. Yep. And you can also say, you can look back and go, well, all of these traditions and all of these ideas, you know, uh, property rights and free speech and, you know, bodily autonomy, like, pff, like we have science, we don't need any of that, you know? So that's the point he's making is you're, you're empowering people, not just to cure diseases, which is good, but you're empowering them to say, well, we think you sh if you're going to have kids, you're going to have this treatment, uh, just like we mandate vaccines. It's the same logic. And if you don't like it, no, no kids for you. Right. I mean, this is as crazy as it can get. So slow down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Think through, think through what's happening. Exactly. And not to be like so precautionary that you freeze, you're paralyzed, right? Mm -hmm. But to be conscientious and, and make sure that we are making the best and most sound decisions. Um, C.S. Lewis was brilliant, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Read all his stuff. His book, Abolition Man, is really good. Um, and I think it would be good for the people that are, they're so excited about this. Yeah. Because they're yes. they're the ones who are who are they're overly confident in their own ability and their own moral reasoning. It's usually right. Pride comes before the fall, kind of thing. <laughs> That's exactly right. It's it's really important. And by the way, we're not being precautionary in the stupid sense that we always no. criticize, right? So mm -hmm. like the, the the thing you brought up earlier, I think they're called pleiotropic genes, where you have one gene that controls multiple traits. Yep. That's a real phenomenon. We know that that occurs. There's no denying that. Now we don't always know the, the diseases or the traits that are involved, but you could edit one gene and get multiple changes that you did not account for. That is a real, real thing. And the same thing, these are, they might be hypotheticals, but it, we're not doing what the European Union does with GMOs and saying, well, you know, you might breed an onion that grows legs and then it destroys a city, <laughs> right? Like, exactly right. Right. We're not, yeah. we're not, it's yeah. You have to be thoughtful about these things. You have to be thoughtful about these things. And so that's, and especially when it comes to, you know, other human beings, you have to be thoughtful about the impacts that you're going to have on them. Right. Right. Is that, is that really under discussion? You know, it's, you're, you're playing with people's lives in, exactly. in, the, in the most fundamental way, you know? Um, okay. Well, on that happy note, we're going to, we're going to end, end the show. Everyone, I hope you have a lovely week. We'll be back next week for episode 246. Yeah. Moving along so. here. Moving yeah, along. Yeah, flying through the year. Yeah. As I said at the beginning, follow us on Twitter. It's a lot of fun. So it's at Dr. Liza MD, at Cam J English. All kinds of great stuff going on. So come hang out with us. It'll be great. And with that, we'll see you next time. Next time. Bye. <laughs>